Well, friends, I open, ask you please to open in your copy of the Scriptures to Mark, Mark chapter 12, after a little bit of a hiatus, four messages on the Christian's responsibility to government, we're returning to the Gospel of Mark. And turn to Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to read verses 18 to 27 of Mark chapter 12. There we read, Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were, there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. This is Tuesday on the week in which Jesus will die. On Friday night, he will be put to death. This is Tuesday, and he has come into Jerusalem. It is proving to be a very challenging day for the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems as though the very floodgates of hell have opened up against him. Now that he is coming, has come into the city and is preparing to go to the cross and die for his people, various groups of his enemies are lining up to take a shot at him. Each group is trying to find his Achilles heel, his chink, the chink in his armor, the point of weakness, so that they might find some grounds of accusation against him. You see, each of the religious and secular political sects or groups in that society had their little niche. They had their places of influence and prestige and power. And because Jesus was attracting such a great following, he was a threat to each of those groups. And therefore, each of those groups was out to destroy him. Spiritually speaking, we might use the words that Jesus used when he said, men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Here is the light of the world, capital L, Jesus Christ. And now the sons of darkness are coming out to try to extinguish that light. The first group that comes to him, you remember, were the Sanhedrin. They were the Jewish high court, the Jewish supreme court, represented by chief priests, scribes, and elders. And they come to try to trap Jesus. What was their angle? Well, they came with intimidation. By what authority are you doing these things? You see, Jesus didn't have the credentials of the rabbis. He wasn't trained in the rabbinic schools. He was not a, an officially approved rabbi. 
and they were hoping to embarrass him. If he said, I have no credentials, that might make him look bad in front of the people. If he said, well, my credentials are from God, then they'd turn around and accuse him of blasphemy as they had before. Jesus doesn't answer their question directly. He answers it indirectly by asking them a question. He answers their question with a question. And the question is this, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Now, he wasn't evading or avoiding the question. The baptism of John, the ministry of John, and the ministry of Jesus were so closely tied together that whatever they thought of John's ministry could be taken for what they thought of Jesus' ministry. You see, Jesus now put them on the horns of a dilemma. If they said the ministry of John was from God, then Jesus would have said, well, why didn't you believe him? If they said it was from men, they would have gotten in trouble with the people because the people had a high regard for John. And so these enemies of Jesus take the coward's way out and they say, we don't know. And so Jesus shuts them down in defeat. The next group that comes to Jesus is an unlikely team, the Pharisees and the Herodians, very unlikely bedfellows. Why? Because the Pharisees were the super religious ones. They were the religious legalists. They were very scrupulous about obedience, not only to Moses' law, but to their own man-made rules. The Herodians, on the other hand, were the secularists. They were the Jews who followed Herod. They were more politically inclined than religiously. But they team up together to come against Jesus, and they take a different approach. They don't intimidate him, but they flatter him. Oh, Jesus, you're one who, you know, doesn't care what people think. You only care what God thinks. And then they ask him the question, should we pay the poll tax to Caesar? Now, Caesar, the emperor, claimed semi-divinity. And they want to know, Jesus, should we pay the tax? And they're thinking to put him on the horns of a dilemma. If he says, pay the tax... He could be accused by the pious Jews of caving in to idolatrous Rome. If he said, don't pay the tax, he could be accused of being a zealot. The zealots, the insurrectionists, they refused to pay the tax, and that would get him in trouble with the Roman government. But Jesus, again, outwits his enemies, and he says, show me a denarius. And on the coin was a representation of the emperor and his claim to divinity. And Jesus said, whose whose image is this? They say, Caesar. His answer will give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Could he be accused of being a zealot, an insurrectionist? No. He said, pay the tax to Caesar. It's due him. Could he be accused of being an idolater, of caving into idolatrous Rome? No, because he said, render to God the things that are God. Give Caesar what he is due, his tax, but don't give him worship because worship is due only to God. And now... There is yet a third attack upon the Lord Jesus. Another faction of his enemies come to Jesus with another challenge. And I'm calling this a challenge concerning the resurrection. And what we're going to see from this passage is the Sadducees who bring the challenge, the scenario that constitutes the challenge, and then Jesus' response to this third challenge. The Sadducees who bring the challenge. Verse 18 says, some Sadducees, note, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him. Who were the Sadducees? What was their basic character? Well, in the time of Jesus, the two basic groups that made up Judaism were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
They both had their origin in the century prior to Jesus, prior to the first century. At that time, Greek culture was making great advances in the world. And Greek culture was pagan culture, pagan philosophy, pagan lifestyle. And the Pharisees wanted to protect the Judaism of the day from that encroachment of paganism. So they made rules uh, beyond the law of God to try to protect against the paganism of the Greeks. There's another group, though, who were more accommodating to Greek culture. They thought we could sort of uh, blend them together. We could fuse together Judaistic religion and, and Greek culture. Well, the Sadducees were the descendants of those. They were more progressive than the um, Pharisees. They were also the aristocrats. They appealed to more of the higher class people, whereas the Pharisees appealed to the lower class people. One noteworthy thing about the Sadducees is they controlled the high priesthood and they controlled the temple. What about their distinctive denials? The Sadducees were better known religiously for what they didn't believe rather than for what they believed. Now, to their credit, they didn't believe in the oral tradition of the Pharisees. Remember how the Pharisees multiplied all these man-made rules going beyond the law of God, and Jesus condemned them for that. You choke out the word of God with your traditions. The Sadducees didn't buy into all of those oral traditions. That was a good thing. But otherwise, they had some serious denials. They only believed in the first five books of Moses as the word of God. They didn't believe the prophets or the writings. So they had a restricted, limited view of the scriptures. They denied the existence of angels and spirits, and they denied, as our text says, that there was a life after death. They denied the doctrine of resurrection. And so religiously, they were the rationalists. They were the ones who didn't believe in an afterlife. They believed we could figure it all out with our own minds. In a sense, they were, they were like ancient liberals or modernists of the 20th century who denied the supernatural. The Sadducees were the liberals of their day, where the Pharisees were the hyper-fundamentalists, okay? Now, why did they challenge Jesus? What did they have against Jesus? As you read the Gospels, you find that most of the opposition to Jesus came from the Pharisees and not the Sadducees. We don't know exactly why, but a safe inference is this. The Sadducees didn't want to be bothered with these petty religious controversies. They were above it. You know, they were rationalistic in their unbelief. They had an autocratic air about them, and they probably looked down on this religious fanaticism and all of these religious debates, and they were above that. And so they didn't enter into a lot of the squabbles that the Pharisees were having with Jesus. But what had Jesus done the day before, Monday, when he came into Jerusalem? He came into the temple, and he cleansed the temple. He got so angry because they were turning his father's house, which was to be a house of worship, into a place of money-making profit. He got so angry in his holy anger. He turned over the tables and he drove out the animals. Well, guess what? The temple was the Sadducees' turf. That was their domain. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus is treading on our turf. So not only the Herodians and the Pharisees, but the Sadducees now were out to destroy Jesus. 
It is interesting to note that before Jesus died and rose again, his biggest enemies were the Pharisees. But when you read the book of Acts, his biggest enemies become the Sadducees because what was the central message of the apostles after Jesus rose from the dead? The resurrection. They were willing to live for him and to die for him because they were convinced we saw him alive from the dead. And the centerpiece of their proclamation was the resurrection. You put him to death, but God raised him up. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And so they become his biggest, the biggest opponents of the gospel after Jesus is raised. Okay, so so much for the Sadducees who are bringing this challenge now, what was the scenario that constitutes the challenge? Verse 19 and following. The Sadducees come and they say, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise, and so there were seven men who ended up marrying this woman, no children. Last of all, the woman died also in the resurrection. When they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Now, let's look at the biblical history behind this scenario. I turn you for a moment back to the fifth book of Moses, Deuteronomy, and read a couple verses there where there was this law in ancient Israel on which this challenge is based. In Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, we read these words. The law of Moses, the law of God through Moses. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married beside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. This was the law. It was called the law of leveret marriage from the Latin word lever, which means brother-in-law. The law in Israel was this. If a man marries a woman and he dies before they can have a, a son, the obligation fell to the man's brother to marry his deceased brother's wife. And the first son that they would have would be raised up to the deceased brother to continue his line. That was the law. And if we were to read on, I won't for the sake of time, the following verses, it was a shameful thing if a man declined to do that. The woman was to take off his sandal, spit in his face because he refused to carry out the law of leveret marriage and to marry his brother's wife, his brother who had died. So do you see the picture? That was the law. Man marries a woman, dies before he has a child. His brother then is obliged to marry that same woman. And when they have a son, that son is raised up to counted as the son of the deceased man. So now, that's the biblical story behind the scenario. Consider the dramatic story uh, that forms the scenario. So the Sadducees come, and they present this imaginary case based on that law. So a man marries a woman, and he dies. He doesn't have a child. And then his brother marries the same woman. He dies, doesn't have a child. Then a third. Seven men, seven brothers end up marrying this woman and 
none of them has a child. And here's the supposed dilemma. Here's the challenge for Jesus. In the resurrection, in the next life, who will be the woman's husband? She's had seven men as husbands. Which one's wife will she be? Now, another question is, how did this woman manage to kill off seven men, seven husbands? But that's not in the purview here. The question is, aha, Jesus, who's going to be the husband in the resurrection? There were seven of them. <coughs> Consider the obvious mockery intended by this scenario. You ask, <clears throat> and get some water. Was this an honest question being asked by this sincere seekers? Like, we really want to know the answer to this question, Jesus. Obviously not. Why not? They didn't even believe in the resurrection. They didn't even believe in an afterlife. Why were they asking the question? They were asking the question in mockery. They were trying to hold up this belief in resurrection to ridicule. It might be called what they say is reductio ad absurdum. That's the Latin which says reducing your enemy's argument to absurdity so as to defeat it. They're trying to show the absurdity of Jesus' teaching about resurrection. See how silly it is? See how foolish it is? You're faced with questions like this, which you can't answer. And so they're trying to expose Jesus' teaching about the resurrection to public contempt. And it was a good ploy. When you think about it, the previous two attacks upon Jesus were attacks upon his person. But his person was so pure, it was unassailable. This is not so much an attack upon his person, but his doctrine. It's kind of a cool, calculated uh, attack, philosophic challenge to Jesus' doctrine of the resurrection. How does he answer? Beginning of verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they <clears throat> neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. The first thing he does is he brings a condemnation upon their whole religion. With the words of verse 24, he says, you are mistaken. Does the King James say err? I love that in the King James. You err, and by the way, it's not air, it's err. Air is what you breathe. Err is when you're wrong, okay? You err knowing not the scriptures or the power of God. He first, he makes a wholesale condemnation of their whole religion. You are wrong, and you're wrong because you're ignorant of the scriptures and you don't believe in the power of God. It's a wholesale condemnation of their religion. So he begins with the general. Now he's going to move to the particular. You're wrong in general. Your whole religion is wrong because you're not following the scriptures and you're not believing in the power of God. But now he's going to correct their particular error in verse 25. They were saying, 
in the life to come, who's going to be the husband of this woman? Because she had seven husbands. You see, they, saw, they thought they were so clever. They thought they had uh, reduced the teaching of resurrection to absurdity. No doubt they had used this to ridicule the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. And no doubt these Sadducees had used this many times to perplex the, the Pharisees. So tell me this, Pharisee. This woman had seven husbands. Who's going to be her husband in the resurrection? Answer me that. And the Pharisees would have fumbled around and, and not known the answer. And they probably thought Jesus is just going to be another victim of our clever, wise reasoning. But what fools they were. And Jesus addresses their folly and he shows them your assumption is wrong. He grants the He knew they didn't believe in the resurrection, but he's going to assume that they did for the moment. And he says, your assumption is wrong. You're assuming that in the next life, there will be such a thing as marriage. But he said, that's a wrong assumption. Jesus says, when they rise from the dead, that is in the life to come, he says, there will no longer be any marriage because they will be like angels in heaven. Now, please don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that people turn into angels. That's a rather common popular belief, isn't it? That people sprout wings and become angels. Isn't that even true in the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart? I have a friend who watches that movie every year with his family. It's a very heartwarming story. But isn't there the character Clarence? And Clarence has to do right to earn his wings. Well, please dismiss that from your mind. People don't turn into angels. Angels are forever angels, and people are forever people. He's not saying you're going to become an angel. What he is saying, there is an area where we will be like the angels in the age to come. Angels do not marry. Angels do not procreate. Apparently, angels are sexless beings. Now, when they appear on earth, they appear in male form. They're addressed as according to the male gender, but apparently angels aren't male and female. You don't have male and female angels. And we will be in, I, don't, I think we'll have maleness and femaleness, but we're not going to be, we're going to be like the angels in the age to come in that there will be no procreation, there will be no marriage. Now, for some of you who are happily married, I hope all of you who are married are happily married. But if you're happily married, when you hear that, you say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I don't know if I like that. I enjoy my husband. I enjoy my wife. Companionship in marriage is one of the most precious gifts that God gives on earth, if it is your gift, isn't it? And you think, wait a minute. How can heaven be heaven if I'm not married in heaven? Well, the reason is, the need that marriage meets now, the need for companionship. In the beginning, God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper, answering or suitable to him. That need will not be there in the eternal state. 
listen to some of the statements that we read about what it will be like in the age to come. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away and turning over to revelation 22 then he showed me a river of the water of life clear as crystal coming from the throne of god and of the lamb in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of the lamp nor of the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. I have a friend we met in college, secular college, and we were both converted in that secular college in Maryland. We transferred together to Nyack College, a Christian college, to study for the ministry. We graduated together. 47 years ago, I was the best man in his wedding. A few months ago, his beloved wife, Virginia, died. And I called him up and I said, Chris, surely heaven must be more precious to you now, knowing that your dear wife of 47 years is there. He's a very spiritual man. He's a seminary professor. He's been a chaplain. And his answer was this. He quoted the hymn, The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Yes, he misses his wife dearly. They had a wonderful marriage. Yes, he looks forward to seeing her. But he reminded me that the centerpiece of heaven is Christ, the Lamb, is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. The eye, the, the, the bride eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. We will not look at glory, but at our King of grace. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. And the fact is, we will have such pure communion with God and with Christ and with one another that whatever marriage affords now, and it's a very precious gift, simply will not be needed. you got to believe that. Nothing will diminish the joy of heaven. So don't be sad about going to heaven because you won't be married in heaven. Will you have a special relationship with your wife or husband? I believe you will. Some of you have had more than one wife or husband because one dies. I guarantee there will be no jealousy in heaven. Polygamy is not good on earth. But if you have multiple ones in the providence of God, it'll all be good because it will be perfect and pure. So in the resurrection, we're going to be like the angels. There's no need for procreation. There's no need for the companionship of marriage in that day. And their error was they were ignorant of the scriptures. The scriptures do not teach that there's going to be marriage in that state. But Jesus not only corrects that error 
but he goes on to instruct them further about the truth of the resurrection. You see, they didn't believe in the resurrection. The question was about the resurrection. They didn't even believe in it. They were, they were asking that question to mock that doctrine. And Jesus is going to correct them in their error. Verses 26 and 27. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Jesus is going to correct their denial of the resurrection. Where does he go? He goes to Exodus. Do you know why? Because they only believed in the first five books of Moses. So he says, I'm going to prove to you on your own turf that there is a resurrection. He could have gone to a lot of other places. He could have quoted Daniel 12, 2, where Daniel says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He could have gone to Job 14, 14, if a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will await until my change comes. He could have gone to Job 19. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. He could have gone to a lot of other passages. But he went to Exodus because they only believed the first five books of Moses. And he goes to the occasion of the burning bush. Moses had tried to deliver the people of Israel, but he did it his way. He killed an Egyptian that was fleshly, and that was wrong, and he failed. And so he's on the backside of a desert, tending sheep. Now God's going to call him to deliver his people God's way. And God appears to him in a burning bush. The bush is burning, but it is not consumed, right? And so um, how does he appear to Moses? He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What must we deduce? He is the covenant God who has made covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, as he spoke to Moses, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had long since died. But he's saying, I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living because they are still alive. And my covenant to them still obtains. Abraham is alive. Isaac is alive. Jacob is alive awaiting the resurrection because there will be a resurrection from the dead. And so he corrects their denial of the doctrine of resurrection. Now, I want to make some applications from this passage. What do we learn? What should we take away from it? I have several. First of all, we learn something about the doctrine of angels. There is a doctrine called angelology, as there is demonology. What do we learn about the angels? that the angels are beings created by God, but apparently they are sexless beings. Uh, they're not male and female angels. They don't procreate. And so we learn something about angels. We also learn something about the doctrine of our individual eschatology. You know that word eschatology? Many of you do. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last or end. It has to do with end things. So when we think of the end of the world, we think of eschatology. How is the world going to end? How is God going to wrap things up? But there's not only an end of the world, there's going to be an end to each of us. Where are we going to end up? And so this teaches us about individual eschatology. Where are we going? 
The first thing we learn is that we are going to live on after our bodies have died. When Moses, when God spoke to Moses at the bush, he said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have died. Their bodies have decayed in the grave, but they are still alive. Why? Because the teaching of the Bible is that when our bodies die, our spirits live on. Those who have a materialistic worldview, who say this life is all there is. Have you met people like that? You only go around once in life. This life is all there is. When you're dead, you're dead. If Jesus Christ is right, they are wrong. If the apostle Paul is right, who said to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord and to depart and to be with Christ is very much better. If Jesus was right, if Paul was right, then those who have a materialistic worldview who say this life is all there is, they are dead wrong. There is a life beyond the grave. When you go to a funeral, and most of you have been to a funeral, probably many, if there's one thing that strikes you when you look into the casket is that nobody's home. Well, I'm looking at the clay house of that person, but the person is not there because we're more than a body. We have a spirit, we have a soul which departs and goes to God. But not only that, from this passage, we also learn that there will be the resurrection of our bodies. It's not enough for God to simply take the souls of his redeemed to be with himself and to worship him forever. But the clear teaching of this passage is that God is going to resurrect our bodies. We're told that when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive will be caught up together with him in the air to be with the Lord and to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. When Jesus Christ returns, there will be a resurrection of our bodies. And it doesn't matter what has happened to those bodies. They may have decayed in the earth. They may have been incinerated, incinerated in fire. They may have been blown up. God has the power to reconstruct the atoms and the molecules and to give us what he promises, a new glorified body joined to our perfected spirit. So that not in a disembodied state, but in a re-embodied state, we will commune with the Lord and serve the Lord forever and not floating around in heaven, but on a new earth, a new heavens and a new earth, a renovated earth, more beautiful than this current earth, like the garden in the beginning. And so we learn something about our individual eschatology. If you're a believer, when your body dies, your spirit will go to be with God and to be present with Christ and you will enjoy his presence. But then when Jesus returns, the souls of all the saints will be joined to their bodies, Old Testament and new, and there will be a great resurrection and we will serve and love the Lord forever, re-embodied on the new earth. We also learn from this passage that the scriptures are the only reliable source of truth in religion. Jesus' words, you are mistaken. And again, I love the King James. You err, knowing not the scriptures. Do you want to be wrong? You want to be wrong about religion? You want to be wrong about life? Just be ignorant of the scriptures. But conversely, do you want to be right? Do you want to understand who God is, who you are, what the world is, about the judgment, about the life to come, about heaven, about hell, about how you are to live in this life? Do you want to know the truth? Know the scriptures. It's all here. This is the only revelation we have from the living God. 
and it's totally trustworthy. The only reliable source of truth in religion is the scriptures. Now, of course, Jesus there was referring to the Old Testament, right? Because the New Testament had not been written yet. But what does the New Testament claim? The New Testament writers claim that they have the same authority as the Old Testament. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. For this reason, we also also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you. What I brought to you, Thessalonians was not the word of man, it was the word of God. I, Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, spoke the word of God to you. And when you read 2 Peter 3.16, Peter refers to Paul's writings, and he says, some things Paul wrote were hard to understand, which the unstable and unlearned twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures, the other graphe. Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. And so both the Old Testament and the New Testament are God-breathed scriptures. Another application is this. Error in religion comes from two basic sources, failure to understand the scriptures and failure to believe in the power of God. Consider biblical history. For much of its history, Israel had strayed from the true God. In the time of King Josiah, the temple had vessels in it for the worship of Baal and Asherah, false gods. The priests burned incense to Baal. They worshiped the sun and moon and constellations. The temple of God housed male cult prostitutes. In the temple, women wove hangings for the, the female goddess Asherah. They worshiped Molech. They gave their children in child sacrifice to the false god Molech. They worshiped the god of the nations. But what happened when the book of the law was discovered in the temple? Josiah cleaned house. He cleansed the temple, and the land was cleansed of idolatry because of the word of God. In the time of Jesus, the religion of Judaism was very corrupt. Why so? Because you had the Pharisees who added to the word of God all their oral traditions, which Jesus condemned. You choke out the word of God by your traditions. And then you had the Sadducees who subtracted from the word of God. We didn't believe in angels. We don't believe in resurrection. So when there are additions to the word of God that choke out the word or subtractions from the word of God, it corrupts the religion. And so it was in Jesus' day. In post-biblical history, why are the dark ages called the dark ages? Because the people were kept from the Bible. Because of the oppression of the Roman Catholic Church, the people did not have access to the Bible. They were ignorant of the Bible. That's why it's called the Dark Ages. And what ended the Dark Ages? The Reformation through Martin Luther and others, when they discovered that the truth of God is not found in church councils and decrees by popes, but the truth of God is found only in the scriptures. And they rediscovered the doctrine of salvation by faith in Christ alone. Only when the light of the scriptures came were the dark ages ended. What nations in the world have made the most advances morally and scientifically and economically and socially, those where the Bible has gone and taken root and where a Judeo-Christian worldview has been embraced. 
And friends, why are we seeing what we're seeing and lamenting in the world today? What accounts for the moral, social decay in our own nation and in our world? Why has there been the slaughter of 60 million plus babies in the last 49 years? Why have we seen the drift away from sexual morality, away from the sanctity of marriage as between one man and one woman? Why are we seeing the confusion about sexual identity, the acceptance of all forms of sexual perversion, which drift is no longer a drift. We are in a virtual free fall. Why are so many churches drifting from their conservative moorings and denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention, where churches that are claimed to be Bible-believing are, are ordaining women as pastors, which the Bible clearly forbids? Why is it happening? It is because the Bible is being neglected. The Bible is not being seen as the sufficient word of God, sufficient for every good work. And so... We need to cling to the Bible. We need to be people of the word. A couple more quick applications. Skepticism regarding the Bible is an ancient phenomenon. These, these Sadducees were ancient liberals. They were deniers of the supernatural. It didn't begin with them. It really began in the garden when God began to reveal himself and the devil came in the form of the serpent and he said, has God said, I, I think you need to doubt what God said. And then he comes out and says, you shall not die. God said, you eat the fruit, you'll die. Satan says, you won't die. Skepticism about the Bible and God's words has been from the beginning. We saw it in the 18th century with the Enlightenment, when men began to tr trust their own natural reasoning rather than the word of God. In the 20th century, we saw the development of liberalism and modernism choking out the Bible in so many churches, denying the supernatural, denying the virgin birth, denying the bodily resurrection and return of Christ. Theological liberalism, it's not new. And here were early liberals, early skeptics, the Sadducees. Finally, we learn from this portion of God's word how to respond to skepticism. Jesus was dealing with skeptics here, wasn't he? They didn't believe the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. How does Jesus deal with it? He doesn't try to prove the Bible to them. You know, the Bible doesn't try to prove itself. It just begins in the beginning, God. We don't have to prove the Bible. People know the truth in their hearts. Man's main problem is not a comprehension problem. It's a suppression problem. He knows the truth, but he suppresses it. Our job is not to defend the Bible. Spurgeon once said, the Bible is a lion that defends itself. Our job is to proclaim the Bible. That's what Jesus did. He told them the truth because as Lenny reminded you last week, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is power. And we're not to defend it. Just use it. Just speak it. Just wield the sword of the spirit. And it will do its cutting work, its convicting work, and its converting work. Before I close, though, let me say, if anyone is here and you are not a born-again believer in Jesus, this passage talks about the resurrection, that believers will be raised in their bodies to live with God and to serve him forever. But believers are not the only ones who will be resurrected in their bodies. We read in John chapter 5, 
Verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. If you're not a believer in Jesus, your body will be raised as well, but not to enjoy God, but to suffer in hell, not only in your soul, but in your body. How can you avoid that? You need to come to spiritual life now in this life by putting your trust in Jesus so that when you die or Jesus returns, you will be raised to be with him and not go to hell. And so if you're an unbeliever in Jesus, I plead with you to put your trust in Jesus Christ, who alone paid the price for your sins, can take you to be a child of God now and will take you to be with himself when he comes again. Let's pray and come to the supper. Lord Jesus, thank you for your great wisdom. Thank you for your clear teaching. Help us to embrace it, to believe it. We ask in your name. Amen.